relax. Those beats mean you're now listening to the very real people in places that supply your high. This is Grown Local with Billy Wayne Davis and Mike McGowan. Buddy. Hey, buddy. Man, it's season three. Trey Seasons. Is that how you say that? I don't think that's... No, that's not how you do the thing? I don't know. I don't know if it is or not. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to really... I'm going to dive into Espanol the rest of this Ooh. year. Once I start traveling and doing stand-up again, I think it's going to be a side... The morning ritual kind of discipline thing. I've always wanted to learn another language other than the language of plants. I have too, and I am learning the language of plants. That is fascinating. But also, uh, I live in Los Angeles, so there's a lot of Espanol here, and and hanging out with our our homie Justin because he speaks arabic and he was just he told me this system he's like it he's an inspiring person too so i think that was the catalyst where i was like i should just do it he he makes it sound easy so that's what just i'm doing do it already i believe I, uh, in you it's a weird way to start season three but we're trying to inspire people you know what i mean <laughs> we want to go to go to mexico first maybe yeah but that'll be our first no we'll probably go to canada before we go to mexico if we're being honest um but we're in Denver. We got back last week. Yeah, it was great. Buddy. Have you had you been there? I had driven through it more times. So no, than been in the no. airport. Nope. But that's no. So no, you haven't. That's not. No. What'd you think? I loved it. It was a beautiful. We did. City. I mean, it was. It's a special little place. It is. Yeah. I always forget, and I make fun of it because it's grown so fast. And that always bums me out a little bit because it was this cool little, you know, quiet little city when I first started going there 10, 11 years ago. And now it's just this bustling little city. and it's But it's so cool. It's got a lot of really cool stuff. And then. But nothing I, like too crazy. Like that's what I figured out is like we got really high and it just, you took me out for a walk because I needed to walk. And like we just wandered around downtown Denver, and I was like, "I'm so high, and this is like such a small, not overwhelming city, but had all these cool things to explore." And I was like, "This is why it's kind of a weed tourist place. You could get super stoned, just walk around downtown Denver, and it's fucking legit." Yeah, no, that's that was part of my plan. I mean. It is a great city for that. I've done that so many times when I've been there doing stand-up. Is like I'll get stoned, and you. It's very walkable. Everything's very pretty. Uh, even when it's chilly, it's not that bad. Uh, yeah, it was. And then the people are really cool. Everyone's really, very, very friendly. Uh, even now, when it's oversaturated with people, but it's still. And they got a train. I took the train in. It was snowing. We got a real good Denver experience, I, I think. Uh, and I'll, I'll just let's explain to the peeps what we're going to do in season three. And because 
here's the way I felt doing these interviews and what I came back and I we haven't even talked Mike and I haven't even talked about this so this is some real shit you guys are hearing is after doing Humboldt and then going to Southern Humboldt and really getting in the cradle of where cannabis growing and the cannabis counterculture started in America it was just like really you know that's a special place so I was like man what are we going to do in Colorado and my buddy who i've known for a long time uh the the man this this episode's about he he really helped us out and pointed us in the right direction not not on purpose but like like what we're gonna do is we we're gonna meet the people that helped and pushed the legalization effort and made it legal we're gonna meet all of them they were on the forefront but like in Humboldt, we met the people that were growing and fighting camp and pushing through and staying tough so this so the plant can get through. And because of them, now we're in Colorado, fast forward decades, and these you're, you're gonna meet you're gonna meet the mofos who did this, and it is really cool what they did and how they did it. It's like I I got those same excite like a different set of exciting chills that we did in Humboldt, you know, because you don't know going in, you're like, what's this going to be? What's when's the hope is as good as because Humboldt's so special. And then immediately, oh, this is special in a totally different way. So the first part of the season is going to it's going to lean more political talk, but there's a point to it because it's still illegal in a lot of states. So you need we need to spread this and how they did it is important because it's very simple how they did it and it can be repeated and should be repeated and if we can get how and just this is important season too you guys it's it's i don't know i'm i just got amped thinking about all these interviews and this is this is this guy's special to my he's one of my close friends i would consider a close friend uh, I've known him for a while. He's one of those people like Mike and Slee and Justin. Like when I met him, I was like, oh, this is like a, a dude I'm going to know for a long time kind of thing. Like we're going to be pals. Uh, and he was on the forefront of a lot of really important cannabis stuff and still is. Um, Mike, you got anything to say? Did I just take it over with my enthusiasm? It's perfect. Anybody listening in a non-legal state, get out a notepad and a pen and take some notes down so that you can get it legal in your state. Because these yeah, are the guys the, that did it. The next, the next six to eight weeks, you guys take notes if if you're in a legal state, because this is it's simple. It just takes some legwork, <laughs> but it's simple. It's like growing weed. It's all it's all connective. Do the thing, Mike. Do the thing. I'm going to keep talking. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Kayvon Kalatabari.
do at length many times just as like you're the cool dude you're the cool colorado dude so i'm very excited for this that's that's very kind of you both to say uh, <laughs> i think i didn't say you were cool so just hold up <laughs> let's just hold, um <laughs> conclusion, okay um, that is true yeah he's he's right no like it's before I met Mike, I knew came on just through comedy and okay, I can tell you this is my first experience. This is my first memory. So that doesn't mean it was my first experience. Uh especially around the time yeah, around the time we were hanging out when I first met you too. Uh so it was I was coming through, there was a bunch of comics and the scene was like picking up in this way that I was like, I was just old enough into comedy that I was like, Ooh, this is a cool thing that's happening. And I also like the cannabis part, but then it hit me. I was like, Oh, there's a lot of cash. This is good for art. Um, and I met you were given tours of, uh, your dispensary and then the consulting thing. And I just comics got on my nerves when I was in cannabis places because I was like very interested in like the way it all worked and all that. And they were just like, what's this one do to your brain? I'm like, guys, it's very easy to figure that out. Shut up. <laughs> Who grew this? How do I grow this? Where does this? And then I remember Kayvon just going like, I like talking to you. But I was like, yeah, I like talking to you too. And we were just, we kind of removed ourselves from the rest of the comics. We're like, so does Sativa make your boners good? And you're like, I'm going to kill everyone here. I can't just smoke something. That's all you need, you giant child. Uh, but you and I just kind of clicked because I was like, this is very fascinating. And then you actually knew what was happening. And I was like, I just shut up real quick and let you talk, which is what I'm going to do here in a minute. So the good old days. I think my really first distinct memory of you was um, just all the, uh, I think it was the Midnight Run show, really, when I absorbed you. What was that one? You're at that Midnight Run show. Right? Fair. I was there. Sure. Were you smoke weed before you go on stage? <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, I remember uh, you coming through to all the shows and, and being a part of what we were doing at the Oriental and those cannabis friendly shows. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was, well, that was a special thing. Do you know what I mean? Like there was a special time. I could feel it where it's like, there's a, you know, I'd been around just long enough to be like, this is special. These special things don't last that long. So you guys soak this shit up. And that's the first place I did dabs. Was that the Oriental? And that's when I thought I did crack because they don't, everyone else was like falling out. And I was like, man, this is great. I'm sweating a little bit, but this is great. I mean, we got the Lucas brothers, you know, so high before that one show, they ended up puking in the hallway at the hotel, uh, running around naked at the hotel yep. instead of doing their show. Yep. No, I had to cover for them. And now they got, they're nominated for Oscar. I was yeah. about to say. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Alan were the workhorses um, on that show. I remember that. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, well, everyone else was falling out. And uh, Sam and I were just kind of like, what's happened? Why are y'all? I knew when the Lucas brothers, 
I was walking out in the parking lot and they got in a van and told one of the producers, I don't remember who it was, that they'd be right back. And I was like, oh, no, you don't leave the venue. You're not coming back. Yeah. And I told that producer, I was like, they're not coming back. Just kind of calm. I wasn't like, I was like, just so you know, they're not coming back. And whoever was like, yeah, no, they said come right back. I was like, all right. Yeah, and I think you did 30 and, and Sam, I think, took a 500 milligram edible and did 30. Yeah. <laughs> Sam moniker. Yeah, that was it was a it was a fun night. And then they did a nice little free show at Mutiny the next night to make up for it. They that's, that's bright. Well, I think that what gets people, and this is such a good transition into to it's not the week. And that's what was making me mad was all those Denver comics being like, they can't handle this Colorado weed, man. I was like, no, nah, dude. It's the elevation. They've never been here before. Those two little dudes were dehydrated. And then y'all fed edibles into <laughs> them. And no one gave them water. You didn't. They just got off the plane. They hit the elevation. They were dehydrated. They hadn't had dinner. There was a whole... They're tiny. Oh, they're little dudes. Little cool dudes. And I looked at them. And somebody's like, we took edibles in the car. And I was like, oh, you guys. This is... Godspeed. It, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I just kind of knew. I was like, oh, you got to drink water. And you know when you tell somebody something like that, but it's, you guys just saw it. I was like, this is going to be a fun show. I didn't think that they would leave. And then I saw them leave, and I was like, oh. Yeah, I remember getting a call from the hotel that night and talking about how, yeah, they one of them was found naked outside the hotel room. The one had thrown up all over the outside of the hotel room. They went down at 3 a.m. looking for cheeseburgers in the lobby. It was yeah, the night. Yeah, that's a fun. That's a good. That's a that's a good Denver night. Let's be honest. <laughs> I've had some fun. When I first started going to Denver, there was no the cannabis thing wasn't there, and it was just this sleepy kind of cow town. If we're being honest, like there's a bunch of cowboys and rich dudes. And the downtown was kind of, it was fun, but it was kind of dead after like 11, like like 10 o'clock. There wasn't anything going on. That's why, that's when I like Denver. That's why I moved down to Trinidad, because that's what it's like right now. No, I like that. That was the thing. I liked it like that too. It was like, there was, but there was like a vibe if you knew where to go in Denver, there's always like fun. And then when the cannabis hit, it was like, boom. But you can tell us, like, how did you, get to Colorado. How did I get to Colorado? Yeah. Uh, I graduated college when I was 19 and started working for an engineering firm uh, a couple days out of college. And I remember I was going to take this big, long, you know, European trip that folks do take the train tour. Um, but I went and applied for this job anyways, and had an offer in the mail the next day. So I thought if I come back from this tour, am I really going to you know, want to go back into that field. And I don't know what I was thinking. I, I ended up taking the job. Um, and I kind of dreaded that for so long, you know, taking this engineering job instead of taking some time off and enjoying myself and seeing the world. But ultimately it was the job that transferred me to Denver uh, to start uh, their their fifth office out here. So I was the, the first employee for that engineering firm out here. And that's what brought me here. Huh. 
Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Anything else we're going to talk about? <laughs> well, it okay. It does make that makes your the way you operate make more sense to me. Yeah, we. Makes, it, it was so I got into cannabis shortly thereafter because I was looking for things to do. I didn't know a soul in Denver. I moved out in 2004, right when I turned 21 and was looking for things to do. My brother gets online and, you know, we were looking for volunteer opportunities to one, get involved and two, make friends and get to know folks and, you know, Habitat for Humanity and the rescue mission and kind of all the same old, same old popped up and didn't really find anything that interested us until he was looking online and saw that this group called Safer had just passed uh, initiatives on Colorado and Colorado state campuses. These were student body votes that had this mission, this message around safer, which was safer alternative for enjoyable recreation. And I don't know if you remember like, you know, Colorado Boulder campus, especially back in the nineties was like, we lost a fucking football game or we won a fucking football game. Let's get hammered and rape chicks and burn couches in the street and pummel cars they're and still all. doing that. I don't know if you've seen the news. Yeah, they're, and they're still doing that. Um, <laughs> but you would, you know, you would go on campus into the dorms, let's say, with booze, and you get a slap on the wrist because it was legal, even if you were only 18, 19, 20. But you took cannabis into your dorm, you could lose your financial aid, you could lose your housing. Um, you had serious repercussions for using this safer drug. So Safer ran this effort. It was a marijuana policy project initiative that they helped fund. And they, they ran it largely symbolic because it was student body. But it said, why are we penalizing people who are choosing to use the safer alternative to alcohol? We're not demonizing alcohol here. But we're saying if we have these two and one is safer, why are we going to have you know the penalties increase pretty dramatically for folks that choose to use the safer one? Um, so that passed and they said, you know, maybe we can run this effort and this message in a place like Denver. And that was the, my first real bout with cannabis was working on this decrim initiative in 2005. I like, I like to color myself the first, uh, modern, uh, or volunteer in the modern cannabis movement back then. Cause you had two employees running the show and I was the first volunteer going out collecting signatures and, you know, that was the day where you, I couldn't beg people to give $10 to us so that we could put this ballot effort uh, up to vote. Uh, and now people are just throwing tens of millions of dollars at the industry. It's really amazing to see how far we come. I remember it was probably a month um, into collecting signatures. I was at Red Rocks, Crosby Stills Nash and Young concert. You know, they, uh, the, the types of people that are there were going around a lot at Red Rocks collecting signatures and all these fucking old hippies that are sitting there smoking pot as we're talking to him. It's like, this is never going to pass. I'm not going <laughs> to wasting your time. Um, and it was being a part of that movement um, and, and volunteering that really set the trajectory for my whole life. I started my pizzerias with the guys that were running that initiative. I, you know, met the guys I started my can my first cannabis company with uh, through volunteering. Um, so yeah, very fortunate that my brother found that group online and that I got to be a part of it when I did. There's a lot of, a lot of fortune. So when you first joined that group, what was the cannabis landscape like out in Colorado? Was there a lot of people kind of growing, you know, black market style, or was it just mostly just hoping to decriminalize it? Was there an industry happening underneath the currents of everything or like, you know, what, what could you see from it? Definitely a lot of black market growing. Um, you know, we, uh, we like to say illicit market. 
um, with all the racial connotations around black market. Um, but uh, I would we say, say people's market here. The people's market. Yeah. Um, I would say that there was, you know, there was a medical program intact, but it was really getting beat down by local law enforcement. You know, we had AIDS patients that would, you know, get their doors busted in by the cops because they're growing six plants legally um, under a, a medical program there. Uh, those lawsuits kind of led to more uh, acknowledgement at the state level that something needed to happen, but there was nothing being done outside of normal, which is a pretty ragtag group of people that, you know, weren't really out to accomplish very much. They were more to just like keep it in our view. It's like, oh yeah, I, I see you over there in the park smoking weed with your normal shirt on. I, I guess that's activism in its own right. Um, but they were actually, you know, being a part of a movement to get something done. So this is, as far as I know, outside of the medical advocates that were there, um, the first on the kind of adult use or recreational side um, in the state. Uh, but yeah, the, the Alyssa market was very strong. That's that's what my initial partners were doing um, in the industry. We're, we're growing up in the mountains, uh, as were a lot of folks. Indoor or outdoor? <clears throat> it was mainly indoor back then. You know, and I, I remember even then and then during the green rush and getting into, you know, pre-regulation in Colorado, I would say half the product at that time was still coming from California, at least. Ah. Uh, even though a lot of folks were growing in Colorado, it was not meeting the need um, for, for what we had there. So California was definitely a big, big supplier for ours uh, back then. And I'm sure it still is to this day, to some extent. <laughs> but how? It's not allowed to cross the state lines. I know these walls we invisible. I don't know. It's weird. It's amazing how that works. So how did that initiative go? No, it went great because it passed. Um, uh, we, awesome. yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was in a sense, a, uh, a decrim effort that at the time our mayor was John Hickenlooper. I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he eventually became our governor in Colorado and he ran for president. Sounded like a real chump. Um, the chump I know him to be um, on that stage debating. Uh, this is a guy that was very threatened when he was the mayor of Denver by cannabis legalization because he had started the first microbrew in the state of Colorado. And he had all <laughs> alcohol interests. What a dumbass. I'm sorry. And he, he came out, you know, fervently against it beforehand. And even after it passed, I think it was 54 to 46. So it wasn't overwhelming, but we passed. And, you know, this concept of decrimming cannabis was still pretty new back then. I think we were the first major city to do it. I don't think a state had done it yet in the manner that we did. Um, but a year after cannabis decrim passed in Denver, arrests actually went up in the state. <laughs> Um, they spiked for two reasons. One, because 96% of uh, cannabis citations or arrests in the state of Colorado were done under state law and in state courts. So we could decrim all day in Denver City and County, and it wasn't going to make a difference, except if we had this mayor that was like, oh, the will of the people and, you know, direct law enforcement to back off. Uh, he chose not to do that. He actually chose to put his foot down uh, even harder and arrests went up, which is why uh, two years later, after we had you know, seen this data come to be, we put another initiative on the ballot that was the lowest law enforcement priority that actually forced them uh, to change that tactic. And that passed in 2007. That's amazing work that you guys were doing. It's also dumb politically what he did to 
to arrest a bunch of people and then motivate them like that. <laughs> well, you know, these were back in the days when I used to chase them around in a chicken suit. And, you know, <laughs> last name is Chicken Looper. I mean, Chicken Looper is, you know, easy to conjure up. Um, and we, so after we, uh, I think it was after we lowest law enforcement priority, he was running again for reelection uh, for mayor. And he refused to debate the topic of why he allowed arrests arrest to go up uh, in Denver. And he just, he wouldn't do it. He would not address the media. He would not address us about it. So he scheduled these five town halls around town in preparation for his, his campaign kickoff. And Mason Tavert, who was the fearless leader of Safer, got me in a chicken suit. And I had this sign that said, hey, Mayor Chicken Looper, what's so scary about marijuana? Very simple. <laughs> Outside of these town halls, effective. That's effective. And it was the finally the fifth one. He came in a different car with a different driver, uh, tucked down in the back, (laughs) and went in the back door of a church. We made a cool little silent film about it of me chasing uh, him and his people into the church. Um, We can't find that video anymore, but I got to look for it. But it'll it'll show up. I have faith. I want to see it. Your point that did follow him his entire life, and he became, you know, known as this guy that was on the wrong side of history um, when it comes to cannabis. Because of greed, he got selfish and greedy, and if he realized, because that's what also happened. It's so clear when it went, the microbrew thing went too, because that's what it's. It's no different than our mayor, uh, you know, currently in Denver, when we were legalizing adult use, he was our mayor. And he came out with the Chamber of Commerce and the Downtown Denver Partnership and all these big money interests. And they said, you know, we do not want to see this come here. This is a family state. We want families to come here for jobs. We we don't want tourism to die by people thinking that we're this weed haven. Um, (laughs) That was my my first time on TV ever was a live debate on CNN uh, before legalization against this woman named Happy Haynes. Happy Haynes was her name and she was debating against the legalization of cannabis. Um, I think That's, she- got- Yeah, I was, it, it sounds like, yeah, she's running like, she's running a syndicate. Yeah, <laughs> trying to cover up Mr. Nice, this little Mr. Nice Guy action. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, but my favorite stat at the end of the day that comes out of it, and, and Hickenlooper's fears were right to an extent. Um, my favorite stat is not that teen uses, you know, continue to go down or stay steady in Colorado, um, which it has. It's that with 18 to 35 year olds, their cannabis consumption has gone up, but their alcohol consumption has gone down in Colorado. And it's been a very, um, you know, quantifiable thing um, that is held steady uh, throughout legalization. Um, and, you know, again, I'm not here to demonize alcohol, uh, but there is one that's safer than the other. And I'm glad that people are, are choosing um, the safer one a little more often these days. One of them's not poisonous. <laughs> I was trying to be kind, Billy. I'm just doing a fact. I'm just doing a fact. Yeah. I don't, I mean, if some people are good at poison, I'm, it's, I was, I was good at it. That's why I had to quit too. Um, but it is, it's a realization that where you're like, oh, damn, this is, you can't argue this. You can't. I mean, data for hundreds of years doesn't lie. (laughs) It just, you can't. Simple physiology dictates. (laughs) You have to be careful with that, you know, uh, conversation to that narrative because 
you know, I'm a proponent of no drug should be illegal. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think any substance should be illegal. Um, no. I'm not saying they should all be legalized and regulated and, and all that, but nobody should go to jail for using something because they're battling depression or a moment in time of weakness or uh, whatever. You know, I think it was uh, Jimmy Carter who said that the, the penalty for using a drug should not be more damaging to the individual than the use of the drug itself. And, you know, that's where we sit is with a criminal justice system that not just on drugs, but with regard to uh, sex work, uh, with regard to homelessness, um, there's these crimes for living and, and surviving. And all we do by incarcerating people and assessing these, you know, civil fines is, is dig their hole a little deeper and, and make them more likely to go back to that thing. That makes them feel good. I mean, we just did that out here in Oregon. You know, we decriminalized, you know, simple, small possession. When I say small, though, a lot of them like, okay, that's a good amount. I'm happy that we're doing that, you know. Yeah. Some of it is not small. Let's just (laughs) be honest. Some of it is like, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, It's a Portugal method, and that's where they they got it from. You know, when you look at uh, Portugal and where drugs sat on their list of priorities for citizens that they wanted this, the, the, the country and its leadership to address. I think drugs was like the number two or three concern amongst people prior to decriminalizing all drugs. And after it, it like bottomed out at number 20 or something like that. <laughs> and it became not an issue because they realized, Oh, it's three times more costly to pay for a bed inside of jail for someone than it is outside of it. Uh, it's, you know, three to five times more costly to give somebody mental health treatment inside of jail than it is outside of it. It's like we're spending so much on incarceration um, that, you know, this harm reductionist approach. I mean, you know, down in Trinidad, where it's a pretty we've got some Trump town down here, um, but I can take a lot of these issues to them and and win, not because I'm a bleeding heart liberal. Um, which I got a lot of that in me as well, believing housing is a human right and all that. But if, if it's a fiscal argument, you know, if, mm. if we make sure that people have housing, healthcare, healthy food, education, the internet, you know, these baseline bottom, bottom line needs that people need, um, they are going to create their own opportunities and in general, be more productive members of society and therefore costing taxpayers a lot more or a lot less money in the long term. Um, And, you know, incarceration and social, um, you know, uh, investments through federal and state and local governments and things like that. Uh, Everybody wins really in this scenario. And if you're truly conservative, you know, tell the government to get out of my business. Um, (laughs) I want to do that. So it's and oh, they also, we've also figured out after Vietnam, a lot of people used heroin over there, but they, a lot of people kicked it when they came back really easy because they were allowed to become part of society again. They weren't treated as outcasts. It, it's, I love facts because I hate being wrong. Like I love being right. <laughs> and that's why I like cannabis is great. Cause you're just like, yeah, you want to argue this? Cause it just, the more we learn the wronger everyone has been, it is a beautiful thing. And I didn't, it's so, I didn't realize it. The string you guys pulled was so quick. If that makes sense. With the decrim stuff. Uh-huh. 
to get it to move as fast as you did. Well, good thing. Like decrim in 2005 in, in Denver only. Yeah. And then, and then we got, you know, pulled our britches up and we're like, you know, feeling pretty good about ourselves. And we ran a state effort the next year in 2006, which a lot of people don't know about. Um, and we lost uh, 44 to 56 statewide. That's still crazy close. <laughs> and then we ran lowest law enforcement priority in 2007, Denver only. And then nothing happened until 2012 when we legalized cannabis in Colorado. So there was a huge five-year gap where, you know, after we uh, passed lowest law enforcement priority, we, we kind of said, this is about all we can do right now, I think. And we ended up starting the pizzeria and starting the cannabis company. And that's when the entrepreneurship um, kind of took over for the advocacy and the activism. So do you, would you say that that may have had more of an impact in it than just the straight up facts and figures and showing that it is the right for people is just, you know, people seeing that there was money to be made in it? I think the money was certainly a, I think anybody that believes in cannabis legalization or, you know, disbelieves that uh, in the, this, you know, current state of things with regard to drug policy, um, I don't think the money changed their mind at all, but what the money did is, you know, the neoliberals in our country um, that love seeing the good old dollar sign. Um, it certainly got a lot of people that were on the fence about legalization that said, yeah, I probably get the social impact, the positive social impact that it would have, but my constituents are yelling at me. My, the soccer moms are yelling at me not to do it, you know? And, and, and at the end of the day, I think we found out it's not soccer moms. It was like two soccer moms out of a million because the other 990,000 <laughs> ever spoke pot. That was something that I opened my eyes to real quick in Colorado was how many lawyers and doctors and, and CPAs and, and all these people, teachers, you know, that you um, would have never equated with smoking cannabis, at least I didn't when I was little, um, tough, tough. And I think having that slowly, you know, get leaked out and seeing people feel more comfortable talking about it, that's what changed. You know, Normal went from, I think when Normal was created and funded by Playboy to start like in the early 70s, that um, support for cannabis legalization was like at 12%, right? And then uh, in the 90s, in late 90s, early 2000s, it made it up to the forties. And then when Colorado started going off, it was like at 54%. That many people did not change their mind about cannabis. No, <laughs> They just felt more comfortable saying yes, even in an anonymous poll. And that's, what's always fascinating about pulling on, you know, especially drug policy, sex work and things like that. People are really not, even if it's anonymous fully, uh, are not often willing to tell the truth um, in those polls. So you never really know the outcome until you actually get there in a discrete ballot box event. Well, some um, people participate and can't tell themselves the truth about it. Sure. Yeah, we've got a lot of built-in traumas. And I mean, my dad, you know, when I was younger, like, weed's evil and gay people are evil. Stay away from them. <laughs> <laughs> and I would argue that those are two of the funnest things in the world. I'm not going to disagree with you there. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a living example. Except like, yes. Yeah, when I moved to the West Coast, I was like, uh, weed and gay people are the funnest. <laughs> call, it, 
you know, Denver's got its fair share too, my friend. Um, no, I, I think, uh, and even my dad changed his mind, right? I mean, as he got older and he saw me in the cannabis space and just, you know, was a, an adult living in this country, um, he changed his mind on those things. So yeah, you had a lot of people that, um, one, always felt that way and came out uh, more honest about it. But two, I do, I do think we changed a lot of minds because once people start talking about it, people realize, oh my God, my mom smoked for the last 40 years. Oh, this person that I really respected, my mentor, I didn't really smoke pot for 40 years. You know, that really changes people's minds about what it does to you. Well, I was just listening to another podcast. Yes, there are other ones. What? But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ah. But it was breaking down how quickly the public opinion had changed on gay rights and everything else like that. And they were looking at it as opposed to other groups that have had a harder time fighting for equal rights. And they were talking about because, you know, anybody could be gay and it goes across different class structures to people finding out like, oh, my cousin's gay. Oh, my brother. Oh, like anything like this. And I think a lot of that has happened with cannabis too. Like you were mentioning just people that you would have never thought, but who you did know came out as like, yeah, I smoke tons of cannabis and I'm not the stereotype that the media is trying to portray. So it helps kind of get us indoctrinated into the idea that, hey, these are just people. That's right. Yeah, the, those both those conversations almost snowballed in parallel with each other uh, in a big way, which is really interesting. But yeah, I mean, it, it's I think it's easier to be against something or to be fearful of it or to be timid about talking about it when you don't think that you know anybody that is or does that. <laughs> and as soon as you realize that, oh, ha- half the people around me are that or do that, <laughs> um, it makes it a hell of a lot easier to talk about and to feel comfortable with. And I think that's the issue with a lot of things in this country, you know, um, you know, getting into kind of Trump world these days. Most of the people that are, you know, vehemently against certain things, and especially those that are staying quiet are truly just really ignorant on them at the end of the day. And it's, you know, this draw from rural areas um, of all the more liberal progressive types into bigger cities, that's really left them with a bit of a a brain drain in smaller towns. You know, I have these young people that are like, I'm gay, I smoke weed, I'm a person of color, I'm a whatever. Um, I don't feel comfortable here, safe here, wanted. I don't feel I'm going to live my full life. I'm going to go to the big city. And so you perpetually are left with these smaller towns across the country that don't have a, a rainbow of perspectives anymore. Um, and these ideologies kind of just get hammered in as right um, because nobody's challenging them. Um, but I think that's going to change. I think, you know, the, the pandemic and the remote economy, I already read an article in the New York Times uh, a few months ago about even before the pandemic, uh, the last couple of years, you saw the biggest growth of um, especially black, but all, all POC populations in this country happen in rural areas because that's where you can still find affordable housing. You know, that's where you can still go find uh, some good paying jobs and a, and a good quality of life and good schools uh, and things like that. And wide open spaces and clean air. Community. So I- that's what that's what we scream on this this podcast all the time because like that's my I think cannabis when it goes legal federally will change agriculture and also the way uh, American culture communicates because of the way the plant responds it won't grow in mass 
Like, it's so funny that Canada's figured that out. That's been really fun to watch. Uh, and the plant's just like, fuck you. Uh, we don't do it like this. And they're like, come on, but money. And they're like, mm-mm. Uh, it's that the pandemic is in, in the remote economy, but we can start growing our own food in these communities. If we could start, it, it you don't have to mass truck transport all this food which isn't the way to do it anyway because we don't have to do it that way it i don't know i'm just very excited about is was a wreck on a lot of countries this one included um but we didn't really notice it because hey i could you know go get go buy this new thing uh, for the cheapest it's ever been so I'm not going to really think about the negative impacts of globalization. Oh, I can go get a kumquat in December. Cool. Um, you know, there's all these convenience things that we've built in that made us feel good about it. But we're now we're, you know, we're definitely realizing the destructive nature of it. That's why we're starting our farm uh, down in New Mexico with all these, you know, progressive kind of urban ag um, concepts uh, built into it. Uh, worker cooperatively owned and, and it's going to change the game. And I'm, I'm a localist, right? Uh, I'm not a, I've never been a Republican or a Democrat or a registered independent or whatever they are. I'm unaffiliated in every way imaginable. And I truly do vote on people and issues um, uh, on, on their face, but especially how they impact local economies and local communities. Um, because you know, if democracy has a chance of succeeding, uh, that's where fires are started. They are in you know municipalities and counties and eventually states. And if we can prove concept on some of these things, whether it's new ways of, you know, growing food systems that can feed a, an entire region that we live in, um, or something around drug policy and realizing the sky didn't fall uh, when we de decriminalize all drugs like Oregon does. And when the sky doesn't fall in Oregon, you're going to see most states in the country uh, decriminalize all drugs in the next decade. I guarantee it. Um, I hope to God they do. I mean, just even having friends who work for the state, how they're talking about it as like a fresh breath of air in a job that they've worked for almost a decade now where like boots on the ground talking about local communities, people who are in the trenches doing the work, they're like excited. And if you know anything about people who work in local government, they're not usually excited about much. So like, even that's so cool to hear. And think about it from the perspective of somebody who is, you know, uh, abusing uh, or addicted to substances, you know, if it's illegal, you are under so much um, stigma and, and stereotype and, and you're under fear, you know, one, might you go to jail? Might you lose your kids? Might you lose your job? You know, if we're talking about this thing that is a health issue at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I've always tried to equate it to imagine how people behave in, uh, with you and in front of you, Billy Wayne, let's say you get, you get out of the, out of the hospital, you know, you're dealing with cancer and you beat it. Like, how are people going to treat you, right? They're going to be the most loving and supportive. Um, you're going to have all the, all the support and nice that you need um, to get through that. Um, but how do people react to you when you get out of jail? Right. Um, they're untrusting. They're fearful. Um, they're very, you know, hesitant to support you. And I think that's that's the difference in how we're treating drugs these days. And if we start treating substance abuse as a health issue, as it should, and people come out of a hospital instead of a jail, 
um, I think their assimilation becomes a lot easier too. Their their ability to just feel and be normal again um, is, is it, the hill is a lot uh, shorter um, than if you're if you're coming out of jail for a nonviolent drug offense. Unfortunately, very much so. Yeah, uh, without a doubt, that is one hundred percent true. That is. <laughs> I wanted to touch on real quick, you were talking about having a consulting company, you know, it sounds like you were there at the forefront with it and also stepping into the absolute juggernaut that the Colorado cannabis industry became. What was that like? So in 2009, when I started my first cannabis company, Denver Relief, um, I was effectively homeless and we started with $4,000 and half a pound of cannabis uh, as a delivery service. And 11 years later, I retired. Um, <laughs> so it went well, it went well. It, 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 it did for me. And I think it did for a lot of folks that you know I worked with. I like to think that I worked with an elevated and they elevated me, good people. Mm. Um, but as a part of that, you know, I had a couple exits. One of them was that that company I started in 2009, we sold in 2016 to Willie Nelson. Uh, that was his first uh, cultivation operation in the country was our, our grow. And my second exit came in 2018 when a company that I founded in Illinois, Cresco Labs, went public. Uh, I was the first CEO for that company. And so I go from, I wrote, I wrote all the applications and that's why my consulting company existed was, you know, when I started in 2011, that consulting firm, there were very few people operating, you know, compliant cannabis businesses. Most of them at the time, all of them actually, I mean, Colorado is the first to really legalize adult use. were operating in either a purely medical program with like caregiver laws or were um, operating um, really willy-nilly because there was no state regulation in Colorado, but we had a, a self-regulated compliant business as well as we could. I think we were the first local building department or had the local building department approval for the first time in the history of this in the country. You know, we were the folks that got, you know, all these, those folks that put grow lights and tables and, and equipment, all those that were meant for people's basements, 120 volt plug-in, you know, had them put a CSA or a UL laboratory sticker on it, you know, because the building department required it. We were the first folks to do that back in, in 2009 and 10, when we were building out our cultivation facility. But in the consulting company, what I did is I took, you know, this, these best practices that we had created, these standard operating procedures, these, this facility design, these ways of doing it, you know, it's way past uh, now. None of that stuff would be relevant today, but at the time it was very, novel and it was new and it was the only stuff document you couldn't search on the internet best practice cannabis facility design and get anything back you can today um so we would go into all these other states and i would write uh, technically write their their merit-based applications and you know in illinois for example we competed against 156 applications uh, for 21 licenses and i wrote five of the winners uh, including the top three scores um, I've earned the top score in Pennsylvania, Florida, um, what else? Nevada, Maryland, um, Utah, uh, Missouri, first or second highest scores in all those states by, you know, continuing to, to build this kind of network that we had. But in that, you know, I started taking ownership 
of all these licenses because we only worked with one team. I would find the best team possible. And I would say, you got to give me three truckloads of money and 10 or 15% of the company <laughs> because everybody else was so stretched for consulting help and consultants were working with like a hundred teams in a state and stretching themselves too thin. But what I'm getting at is in that with that company that went public. And I think Cresco for, for the record is, is about as good of actor as you can get with these MSOs, these multi-state operators, but you can't take a company public and you can't run a public company without taking advantage of labor, um, without, you know, making the bottom line, the most important thing financially, that bottom line. And I don't think that's right. And it, it took seeing that firsthand as well as getting involved with kind of the shared economy movement in Colorado over the last few years, um, you know, worker cooperatives, employee-owned companies, my pizzerias converted to employee-owned during the pandemic uh, to go along with giving all full-time employees free health, dental and vision insurance, free mental health services, uh, down payment assistance on a house, PTO, free meal plan, pay paternity, maternity leave, retirement plans, on and on and on. Um, it started to just like make me feel uncomfortable being in the cannabis space anymore, especially with the people that I was working with. And I uh, retired from it two years ago. And I, I resigned from all my boards with the National Cannabis Industry Association and the Minority Cannabis Business Association and all these others and said, I just can't do this anymore. And I stepped away. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of feeling that right now, you know, when we were going towards legalization here, it was a bunch of me and my friends here in this town, you know, of Eugene, it's in his third biggest, second biggest city in Oregon. But like we had our group that was all business owners going towards legalization, getting lobbyists and everything else. And like we were, you know, starting at the ground floor and now seeing that a lot of those owners have now made a lot of money and are now kind of separating themselves from the workforce and, you know, kind of treating it in a way that's different that is really bumming me out personally because i was like we came from outside of you know the traditional market or whatever you want to call it we could have done what i feel is maybe built an infrastructure business that would be completely different than you know the regular capitalistic society but it seems like they've kind of taken us more towards them than anything else. And it's just, it's been very hard to see it, especially with people who we've all come up together, but, you know, we were all at the table together, but you were the business owner and your homie was the salesman. And now you don't even talk to your salesman who was your friend throughout the entire process. And that's been hard to see. Yeah. When we, when uh, we used to joke all the time uh, that we used to see the people that we started in the industry with in Colorado only when we were in Vegas or LA doing cannabis events, right? Because everybody was hustling so hard. And back then we believed truly that, you know, we were creating an industry that was gonna be different and not just another one, right? One that was gonna be more considerate of workers, one that was gonna be um, more considerate of the communities that they operated in that were locally owned. Um, and, you know, honestly peddling a, a good that could do so good. Um, and, you know, that was more equitable and all that. And, and none of these things happened. You know, you look at uh, the ownership in the cannabis industry today, as far as market share goes and who's owning the big players. Um, it's the same people that own a lot of other extractive industries um, in the world. And if there's one saving, you know, hope here, I think uh, it's 
just talking about what we were earlier with this kind of localist mentality, this regional mentality, you know, I'm hoping that we get to a time just like we are, I think, getting there in our food systems, understand that we're willing to pay more money for something that's grown local, that's higher quality, um, that's organic, that's all of these things, you know, that is craft. It's just like how beer went that way. Um, they People broke away from drinking just Bud and Miller and Coors and said, I'm going to go to the, you know, small brewery down the street. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, those are now getting gobbled up by the big company. <laughs> it's like regurgitating on itself and it's like this weird snake eating its tail. But I think that we can get to a point in cannabis where local does thrive a little more than it does right now and quality does because, I don't buy, you know, cannabis from dispensaries anymore um, because, frankly, it's garbage uh, in Colorado anyways. And uh, I prefer to support my local home growers uh, because they're growing good quality still. And, and they're actually, you know, doing something with that money that I think is admirable. I mean, here in Oregon, we've been able to keep a lot of outside money from flooding in it's definitely happening but from traveling to these places it seems like it's at a lower amount than some of these places for colorado being the first state having a bullet bullseye on its back and seeing all the money that could be generated do you think that there was a lot of outside money that flooded in and maybe pushed local smaller craft people out well, it, it didn't start that way because we actually had a, a prohibition for the first six years of legalization uh, on people outside the state owning an interest. Now, did it happen through back channels and all that? I'm sure. Um, but it wasn't until two years ago that the state passed legislation that finally allowed for a certain percentage of outdoor money to come in or outside money, um, including publicly traded companies and dealing with that ownership issue. Because the ownership, you know, compliance issues in Colorado are pretty rigorous as they are in most states. Um, and, you know, how many thousands of people, tens of thousands of people own a publicly traded company? Um, you're not going to be able to comply with the laws that are on the books. So they changed things to allow for that kind of investment. And it's only consolidated the industry more. I think in Colorado, you've seen, I, I would guess that about five years ago, we had between 500 and 1,000 operators they say at the height of like the green rush, we had maybe 3000 in Colorado, unique individual operators. Mm. I would bet today we have 150. Wow. Uh, what? The big boys and girls, the big fans buying up everything. And sometimes even keeping like the local or regional name and hiding it as such. Um, but that consolidation is in full effect and same things happening all over the country too. Very disheartening. Oh, yeah. Huh. Well, what a great first episode. But, uh. but with, that, <laughs> with that is, as I mentioned, this degraded product, right? Because when the commodity becomes about that bottom line, you're going to automate as much as you can. Um, you're not going to you know, pay people to scout like they should these huge crops. You're not going to grow in the, the more smaller batches um, that you should to get the quality that you want and, that, and, and maintain that impeccable environmental control, um, you're going to get an inferior product. And that's where we're getting quickly in Colorado and, and have been actually for a couple of years. So I think this desire for people to create something craft um, is really starting to bubble here. And I hope that we take, you know, some lessons from like Oregon and, and California. I think they've done some things to promote craft a little more, although that's a whole nother 
episode talking about how policy fails dramatically every time it's in. <laughs> we'll we'll do that episode. We'll have you back. <laughs> There's so much, man. We graded all these like equity initiatives across the country that were meant to encourage, you know, especially black men getting involved in the industry in places like Oakland, especially. Um, and man, they read great when you're when you're reading them. But the unintended consequences and the loopholes that are created in any policy that people get around and and maintain the status quo with is just absolutely amazing. And there isn't a social equity program in this country right now that succeeded, unfortunately. Well, what about Illinois? I know that they were just putting one in. Do you know anything about that or how that one's faring? Because that one, when I read it, I was like, oh, this looks like it could be good. You know, there, there's some good parts there, but but think about having a a, dom, a an industry dominated by titans, right? Like the most multi-state operators in North America are headquartered in Chicago. You know, they started in it's it's Cresco, GTI, Pharmacan. Um, I forget the the fourth one, but they they own the market, and so now you're giving a little you know a little weed plant to like you know, this black group in, in South uh, Chicago and saying, here you go, go compete against these guys, you know, and they do it in a way that sure it allows them to get a license, but does it really allow them to compete when it comes to, you know, visibility of these retail outlets, uh, when it comes to access to capital, um, when it comes to having the acumen, the, the consultants, all of those people around them to help them do it as good as those you know, those well-versed folks are doing, um, it's not going to happen. So even if they do get going, and that's, I get it's part of the process, but the advantage, in my opinion, isn't big enough to get them over those hurdles. And I think it sets them up to fail in a manner that probably gets them bought out uh, in a couple of years by the same businesses that were not meant to have those licenses. I hate to be a Debbie Downer. I've just never seen it work. That's what this is for, is... The, it's the casual cannabis user and people that are curious about it. And then Mike has the nerds, but it's to get that information out to people because they just see the, they just see the press release of the, all the stuff. That's all they see. And like, Oh, it's, it seems to be they're doing the right thing. It seems like, because they don't that who has time to look deeper unless you're into stuff because of the way information is coming to us. And that's part of why we're doing this is to, so people understand that it's human beings that are doing that, that will make this industry. It's not corporations that their money can help, but fuck them. Yeah. And we just want, we want the information out there. Ultimately, the same thing as we were talking about decriminalizing all drugs is it's just ignorance is what breeds a lot of that. And the people have to be aware of this information. So the only power I think we have a lot of times is voting with your dollars. So when you go to a store or something like that, you can see these things happening and make a conscious decision in them. So if, to put it in that context, then this is a, the perfect example of a social equity program not working. And I think you could apply this probably to most places across the country. So in Oakland, they had a ordinance that passed that prioritized licensure going to um, folks because you can't say you get seven licenses, black people, you get four licenses, brown people. You, you can't do that. There's all sorts of federal laws that disallow it. But what you can do is you can say, 
let's give them to folks that live in this census tract or this zip code um, who, uh, you know, these districts have been disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs with regard to, you know, statistics that are verifiable and or they've had a parent or other income earner in their family that's been thrown in jail for cannabis or they've been thrown in jail for cannabis themselves or, you know, they've had some other thing that's, that's verifiably impacted them. Um, regarding cannabis uh, negatively, and you will find out that most of those people just happen to be black and brown, right? So you're accomplishing the same goal without saying expressly that. No way. <laughs> but what happened in Oakland is they would do this, and 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 there's a couple uh, documented cases of this where uh, the person who got the license or should have got the license got it, right? They were they they met, they checked all those boxes. Um, but how the law was written uh, said something to the effect of, you know, you have to have majority ownership. Well, what does ownership mean? Ownership is equity on paper, right? There's all sorts of ways to distribute profits from that company differently. So what these big venture capital firms, generally owned by white men, would come in and do is invest in this business, which they needed the capital to, to be fair. This person living in this marginalized community didn't have access to capital, right? right. Um, the people around them. So they needed the money, but in exchange for it, they had to write away, you know, 90% of the profits through a management agreement or, you know, some other agreement that didn't change the equity structure. It didn't change the ownership structure of the business but it definitely changed where those profits went. And at the end of the day, that person, yes, they own this license, but they're not really gaining anything from it. God. Motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, did you know that I learned this recently, McDonald's makes most of their profit through real estate. Mm -hmm. Have you not seen the Michael Keaton movie? It's a great movie. Good movie. Oh, I love Michael Keaton. He's fantastic. He is fantastic. He's good. That is their money. And this, this is exact. This is like the impetus story of real estate being why McDonald's is what they are today. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, it's the movie the is founder, called. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The founders. It's a fantastic movie. Everybody should go out and watch it. It's a lot of what we've been talking about tonight. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet it has a lot to do with what these sons of bitches are trying to do right now. Oh, this is, we've got to, can, we've got to wrap this episode up, but damn it, Kayvon, can you come back? Anytime. Yeah, I love, awesome. you know, a lot, uh, I feel better talking about the industry now that I'm out of it. You know, I still have my ownership. <laughs> no, I get it. Yeah. You would get me. I would have dropped 30 F bombs and I would have been a little angry and my eyes would have, you know, been all, I just, I wasn't healthy um, being in the industry at the end of it. And now I can reflect a little better and I can really, I think, take a lot of what I'm trying to do in other industries and other spaces around, you know, housing and, and employee ownership and, uh, and apply them to these conversations. So they're much more healthy. I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm so, so is, happy to have you. This has been fucking awesome. You're a Colorado Sherpa, and uh, we're very excited. This is uh, thank you so much. Got me on a mountain because, as we talked about before, I'm uh, I'm not going up there unless it's warm out. Yeah, no. <laughs> he and I are. Yeah, we're on the same page. If like if if you want to take a helicopter, we'll take a picture up there. But I have no idea. I have no desire to climb. I like uh, to watch movies about it. That's pretty cool. Because I'm like, <laughs> look at those guys. It's insane. 
Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Let me know if I can ever support. I would love to be back. Oh, we're going to call you a bunch. <laughs> yeah, this is this was fucking awesome. A very good insight to a lot of this. You know, and then, and then you get into not just like the macro arc conversation, but all the stories, you know, like just the fun stories about people and places in that time. It's a shame I didn't take more pictures and or, and or write some more stuff down. But well, that's you get what... time. You got time to write stuff down. You, I know we're tra- I've been to Trinidad. You got plenty of time to write stuff down. <laughs> well, that was the cool thing. You know, I I managed a gardening store, which is a very low end type of thing, but it was right around legalization. I remember the buzz and like you know, especially lots of you know uh, illegal dudes coming in just trying to get information and trying to find out what was going on. And there was such a buzz about it. We were the third state in the country. So I can't even imagine having a consulting company in the very first state to go legal, you know, how much of a buzz there was around it. We counted our lists, our contact lists one day. And it was, it took about 250 calls before we would accept the client. And I don't think that was, that's not knocking 249 people or teams. That was just the kind of firm that we are, where we chose to work with the most capable in each state than just those checks. I I would make just as much money and make just as much equity, but by working with one team. And I would go move to, I moved to Chicago for nine months to go meet with local officials, with law enforcement, with schools, with neighbors, with businesses. We got letters of support from schools and Catholic schools and police chiefs and city council people. And, you know, the neighbors that live in the houses next door, we would just go and I would yuck it up with these people. And we would build these amazing narratives and these amazing teams. We'd get people from, you know, University of Chicago or Northwestern to sit on our advisory board or on the board of the company. And you just put all these teams, these great teams together, build this great local support narrative. And then you write smashing technical content. And it was just very hard to have them say no to that. And it was, that was the, it was a fun ride. It was the most stressful period of my life, but it was the most fun. I'll never have anything <laughs> as fun, as unique, as like groundbreaking as being a part of that. And I always look back at it fondly. No matter how much it sucked most days. Because <laughs> it's problem solving for your engineering mind. Oh, yeah. I mean, Did you see, he got excited when he was talking about it. Just then. I was just thinking the same thing. I was like, he's getting an engineer boner right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I loved it, man. I hope, I, I hope everybody can. But I, I hope I find something that exciting again in my life. You, I... You're building farms and you're building a new town, motherfucker. You know what you're doing. Yeah, you know, we're also, and we're going to do some new and unique and try some new things, but right now I'm, I'm writing other people's coattails, you know, and, and, and implementing things that have been done for a long time that I just don't know anything about. Um, so I'm, I'm catching up. So it just feels different than being on the front end and not knowing and really faking it until you make it in a major way. You know, um, I started wearing polos for that. Who the fuck wears polos? You know, I was wearing polos, man. You know, you did have a polo shirt on sometimes. I just wore I just wore t-shirts, you know, in my life and and hoodies and stuff like that. But it got less and different. You know, it was a it was a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Kayvon, thank you so much. Uh, If you want people to get a hold of you, tell them where to get a hold of you. If you don't, 
don't say anything. Uh, my cell phone is seven two zero now. Oh, I was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, I would have done that. Oh. Remember, it takes two hundred fifty calls before I answer. <laughs> Man, when he said that those first two numbers, I got like my stomach dropped. I was like, oh god, don't do that. Our fans will call you and ask you questions. <laughs> and that that got me into some trouble because I would take all calls and I would talk like the to the kid that's going to high school in Tennessee. I had a couple of those writing their paper because they saw me on CNN or Vice talking about something and I would give them an hour interview for their sophomore year paper, you know? <laughs> but yeah, I can't do that anymore. I got girls I adopted. Um, so uh, to get a hold of me, probably Instagram is the best uh, for my travels and it's at kkhalabari, K-K-H-A-L-A-T as in Tom, B as in boy, A-R-I. It's trained. He knows he's in America and with that last name. Tyler Kalabari Lamaki. I think <laughs> threw Tyler in there, so it didn't sound so terrorist. You know, this is in the 80s after some shit happened. So that's thoughtful. The Tyler, that is very thoughtful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. It's and like I said, we're gonna have to bring it. He's gonna have another episode. You know what I mean? He's so knowledgeable, and there's the several. There's gonna be several episodes where you guys are gonna comment like, "Were you guys even in the room?" But these guys just take over, and I don't mean in a bad way. But they like they're so knowledgeable, and they know how to present their knowledge in a way that it is like, you know, it is. It's like me and Mike are like, well, we're just going to get out of the way and we're just going to make sure the microphones are pointed at you because uh, everyone needs to know and hear you. It's it's a pleasure to do those of these episodes. So, guys, thank you so much. Hit us up with any questions or on Twitter. You can hit us up, Grown Local Pod, on Instagram. Uh, anything you – any oh, how about this? Any Colorado people, we will be going back. We're going to – be uh, interviewing some growers and some more uh, people inside the actual industry the ne- on our next trip. So hit us up at grownlocalpod at gmail for any leads or tips. Or if you want to advertise, hit us up too. We are taking advertisements now. You guys, we love you so much. Grow your own. Love you guys. Sleep! Sleep!